Uh, well, welcome today. Glad to have you here. If you're new, if this is your first time with us, my name is Jonathan. I'm the lead pastor here. Glad that you're joining us uh, today. Uh, I, there's a, a number of years ago, Nuala and I were part of a community group, and there was this couple that we just really enjoyed hanging out with. She was so funny. She just had us laughing all the time. And he was just so quiet and just kind of steady. And, and we asked him once, we was like, how did you guys end up together? And she said, oh, we met, I forget, at a party or a church or somewhere, and we didn't know each other. We just started up a conversation, and we talked and talked and talked. We've never stopped talking. In the end, we got, uh, we got married. And uh, I'll bet you've had those kinds of conversations in, in your life. You know, sometimes a brief conversation can change the whole course of your life, can't it? Uh, it begins uh, with a simple hello or a hi, and you sit down, and, and two years later, or, or sometimes less, you turns out you're married to that person, or you've taken a job with them, or, or you've ended up moving to a place you never thought you would move, or, or it changed how you thought about everything in, in the world around you. And, and for the rest of your life, you look back on that conversation and say, that conversation started it all. And it started just like thousands of other conversations, right? A, a simple hello, an introduction. And yet by the time that conversation was done, you knew that something different was going to happen in your life. Now, that's the kind of conversation that we come to today in John's account of the life of Jesus. It's a conversation that happens between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. And it's this, this sort of simple conversation that ends up being one of the most important conversations in all of human history. And so we want to look at it today. But, but before we get into the conversation, John kind of sets it up for us by telling us what happened before that. In uh, the end of John chapter 2, in verse 23, the apostle writes this. He says this, now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. It's an interesting way to kind of begin this story. John tells us that Jesus was in, the, in Jerusalem in the Passover. He was doing all these miracles. And remember, John always refers to Jesus' miracles as signs because his miracles are never sort of party tricks to draw a crowd. Rather, they were always signs, indications of something bigger that God was doing. And so Jesus was doing all of these miracles, these signs, and there was all these people who put their faith in Jesus. And you'd think that Jesus would be excited about that. But John says exactly the opposite. Jesus wouldn't entrust himself. He wouldn't, he wouldn't say, oh yeah, these are my followers, which is really interesting, right? We, we sometimes think that if only Jesus, if only God would do some great miracle, something big, people would see it and put their faith in him and they, they would come and follow him. But Jesus is suspicious of that kind of faith. Th that kind of faith is precarious, tenuous, Jesus won't entrust himself to people with that kind of faith. Which is interesting. There's all kinds of sort of so-called faith that is that way. There's the kind of faith that comes from miracles, from thinking, well, if I put my trust in God, he'll just magically provide all of my needs. That's not a solid faith. It's faith that comes from saying, well, uh, 
I was born into a Christian family, so therefore I am automatically a Christian. Or, or I was baptized as an infant, and though I've done nothing else, I'm clearly a Christian because my parents made that decision for me back when I was just a baby. In some parts of the world, your, your religion is actually printed on your passport. And therefore, I'm just a Christian because it was printed on the passport. Some people have a faith that is based instead on, uh, on uh, in some places of the world where the people are given food because Christians come and they care for their needs. And they think, oh, if I proclaim to be a Christian, I will get more food. I will get extra food. And some people, they have a faith or a belief that they're good with God simply because they're good people. They haven't done something terrible. They haven't done something bad or wrong. But it turns out that while all those things aren't in, them, in and of themselves bad things, they are not grounds for a solid, genuine faith relationship with God. They're tenuous and precarious. Those are the kinds of things that are easily broken. And frankly, that kind of faith is, is empty. Then there are others who, who in, a, in, a, in, a, in a desire to fill that kind of spiritual hunger that's in all of us, they, they try to fill it with other things. They, they put their faith in other things like mindfulness or Zen or yoga or or in money, or adventure, or sexual adventure, or family, or education, or all kinds of different things. Because there's this, well, they're not overtly sort of religious. There's this hunger in them to try to fill this thing in their life. That kind of faith is precarious too. And Jesus understands all this. Jesus understands people's character and he's not fooled. And so he doesn't sort of say, yes, this is faith in me. He says, no, I, I don't entrust myself to those people. So that, that's sort of the background to this conversation now that, that Jesus is going to have with Nicodemus. And that's this, that being spiritual is not enough. It's not enough to just be spiritual, to try to fill that thing in your life. It's not enough be, to just sort of proclaim that you have faith because of something that someone else has done. And so in this story, even though a bunch of people have put their belief in Jesus, he doesn't connect with them. He doesn't say, yeah, that, that's, that's people who put their faith in me. Now, Nicodemus, Nicodemus is a really smart guy. He's just off to the side and he's watching all of this. He's seeing the miracles that Jesus does and he's watching these people put their faith in him and he he, I mean, he's just smart and articulate. He's incredibly powerful. In fact, he, uh, he's part of the ruling, uh, the, the ruling, it's called the Sanhedrin. It's the Jewish sort of council, religious council. Uh, and in fact, he is, if not one of, he is the teacher of Israel. So, I mean, the modern day equivalent would be one of the cultural elites, someone who is high profile, deeply respected. When they talk, they shift how people think on things. They have some sort of platform from which they can sort of reach out and communicate to the world around them. I mean, that's the kind of person that Nicodemus is. He was, he was I mean, he was no idiot. He, he, he was so smart. And he was watching everything that was going on. And to his credit, he wanted to find out what was really going on. And so he investigates. And he sets up kind of a quiet meeting with Jesus. It's at night. He doesn't want everyone to be poking around. He just wants to go and find out what Jesus is all about. 
And that's where this conversation comes from. Here's how it begins. In, in John chapter 3, verse 1, it says this. Now there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He comes and he says to Jesus, look, I've been watching. Clearly what you're doing is more than just your own thing. God must be with you. So help me understand. Help me understand who you are and what it is that you're doing. And here's how Jesus responds. In verse 3, Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus says to Nicodemus, he says, if you want to know God, if you, if you want to have a true, genuine faith in him, if you want to see what God is doing in the world around you, if you really want to be part of it, you must be born again. Now, what we don't see when we read it in English, but what was very clear when he spoke it to Nicodemus is that Jesus used a word in Greek that had two meanings. Same word, two different meanings. That word born again can mean born a second time, born again, or it can also mean born from above. And so Jesus says to Nicodemus, if you want to know God, if you want to, if you want to, have a genuine relationship with him, then, then you need to be born a second time. You need to be born from above. You need to be born, reborn spiritually. Now, you have to remember who Jesus is talking to. Jesus is talking to, you know, one of the most religious men in one of the most religious nations in the world. The thinking in that day, which is completely the same as the thinking in our day, in that day, the Jewish people thought that if they were Jewish people, if they didn't do something terribly bad, if they weren't openly blasphemous against God, then they would be good enough to go to heaven. And Nicodemus, of all people, was the most conscientious, the most knowledgeable, the most devoted, the most committed. He was the teacher of the people of Israel. And yet Jesus says to him, it's not enough. It's not enough. Your own efforts, as good as they are, aren't good enough to have a relationship with God. You need to be born from above. You need, there's another element to your life that you are missing if you really want to have a relationship with God. And, uh, and that's what, I mean, this is what he says. He says, being spiritual is not enough, no matter, no matter how good you are at it. If you want God in your life, you need to be born from above. Now, Nicodemus, Jesus, these are brilliant men. They're just having this open conversation. They get right to it and get talking about it. And it turns out that, that, that Nicodemus doesn't really love this answer that Jesus has. He, he actually ignores the part about being born from above, and he latches onto the idea of being born again a second time. And this is what he says in response. In verse 4, he says this. Nicodemus said to Jesus, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now listen, this isn't an innocent question on Nicodemus's part. This is the smartest man in the country. I mean, he's a grown man. He understands the birds and the bees. He understands what's going on. So this is scorn. He's like, come on. I mean, this is ridiculous. What are you talking about? But you see what he does? He latches on to the, the physical side of what Jesus 
said about being born again. But he ignores the spiritual element. The, the idea of being born from above. And you know, lots of people do this today too. They're like Nicodemus. They're, they're smart. They're good people. They, 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 I mean, they live good lives. They serve the people around them. They're at the top of their game in their career. They love their families deeply. They're good at all of these things. But they struggle with this idea that there's another dimension to this life. And understandably so. I mean, we are taught, uh, most of us from a young age, that uh, sort of a secular worldview, that what we can see and taste and touch and test, that's what's true, and anything outside of that simply isn't. In fact, they often have the idea that anyone who believes in God, the onus is on them to prove that there's a God if they want them to believe in God. But that actually turns out to be kind of a, a naive approach, a, 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 a just a, a faulty way of thinking about that very thing. Tim Keller, in a, a great book, uh, it's called Making Sense of God, he points this very thing out. Uh, he's been, he, in this book, he compares a secular worldview with a, a biblical worldview. And this is what he says near the end of the book. He says, I've argued that all varieties of secularism are sets of beliefs, not simply the absence of faith. Indeed, to say you must prove God to me is to choose and believe in a form of rationality that most philosophers today consider to be naive. Neither religion nor secularity can be demonstrably proven. They are systems of thinking and believing that need to be compared and contrasted to one another in order to determine which makes the most sense. In other words, to simply say that there is no God, no spiritual dimension to this life because you can't see it, taste it, touch it, is like saying that the earth is flat because you can't see the curvature of the earth. It isn't what you see versus what you can't see. It's about investigating and genuinely comparing one set of beliefs, secularism, with another set of beliefs, belief in God, as laid out in the Bible. Otherwise, if you aren't willing to do, do that, you simply end up like Nicodemus, who simply latches onto the, the physical side of life, who just simply says, well, it's, it's all physically, physical, and, and anything else is ridiculous, and, and, and are simply unwilling to examine and to think about that side of life. But those who are genuinely thinking say, well, okay, let's, let's examine it. Let's think about it. In fact, if you want a thoughtful, honest, you know, good examination of both secularism and an intelligent look at Christian worldview, you should pick up his book. It's by Tim Keller. It's called... Uh, it's called Making Sense of God. And uh, in it, he points out that, that there are strong beliefs, strong arguments for a belief in God. Now, he says, you can't prove God, that he exists, because by definition, God exists outside of this physical world. That's the very definition of who God is. So instead, you have to look at the evidence. You have to infer from the evidence around you about God's existence. And he says there's some strong arguments for the existence of God. He says, for instance, we know scientifically, scientifically we know that something doesn't come from nothing. So the, the universe itself is an argument for the existence of God, for saying that all of this couldn't have come from nothing, so there must be a God who created it. Now, of course, those who hold a secular view also would say, well, yes, it all came from nothing, 
and that, but that nothing was, was not God, which is a legitimate position to hold, but it's not a scientific position. Science says something doesn't come from nothing. So that position is also a faith position. One faith position and the other is another faith position. Equally rational, equally worth considering. But then he also points to the, the fine-tuning of the universe. Again, this comes from science. Science has looked at all of the variables that are necessary for organic life, the, the speed of light, the gravitational constant, the, the strength of the strong and the weak nuclear forces, and, and a variety of other factors, and has realized that they are all finely tuned to just the perfect level so that life can exist on this little rock floating in the middle of the universe. And the mathematicians have figured out that the likelihood of that happening by accident by fluke, is one in ten with a hundred zeros behind it. It is literally impossible. Which again points to the idea that there is a God behind all of this that makes it happen, based on a scientific knowledge. Then there's the question of, of morality. You know, across cultures and throughout history, all humans have a certain innate moral standards that, that are just universal but they don't make sense within the context of a worldview that says that we're just evolutionary species that is about the, the survival of the fittest. And the question that the philosophers wrestle with is, where did that kind of morality come from? And the, the more rational answer is it comes from a God who holds value that makes us in his image, and therefore we have these moral values. Then he points also to the idea of human consciousness. The idea that we have self-awareness, that we can think about the fact that we're thinking. And, and he points out again that scientists, scientists have not figured out how, how the firing of neurons and, and synapses, they said consciousness is much more than that. There, there's, a, there's a spiritual level to who we are. Again, pointing to the idea that there is a spiritual dimension to life that God is part of, that God is the source of. And then he points to the, to the fact that as human beings, we appreciate beauty. That we find some things in this life, some forms of art and, and some ideas just profoundly, movingly beautiful. And that seldom do we find those things beautiful because they're useful. Rarely is that the case. Instead, we find something beautiful. We have the sense that, that this beauty is, is real and it reflects the, the universe as it ought to be. Like as if there was some original incredible beauty that has decayed and declined, but when we catch a glimpse of it, we say, that's how it ought to be. Again, strong arguments for the, the existence of God in this world in which we live. Now, of course, none of those proves the existence of God at all. But they raise questions that the secular worldview can't answer. And they place faith in God in the same category of rational thinking as secularism. And the invitation to thinking people, the people like Nicodemus, smart, intelligent, thoughtful, capable people, is to think about the idea that there may well be that there is a dimension of life that is outside the physical, that there is a spiritual part of life that has to do with God. Nicodemus, when he first hears this idea that there's another aspect of his life that he has missed, the spiritual side, I mean, he pours scorn on that. But Jesus, Jesus doesn't, 
get up and leave the conversation. No, he, he's happy to engage with them. And so this is what Jesus says next in verse 5. Jesus answers Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So first Jesus says you must be born again, born from above. Now Jesus adds you must be born of water and the Spirit. Now what's he talking about here? Well, he's explaining what happens when you're born from above. And he's using language that Nicodemus would understand. Because you see, Nicodemus, of course, is a scholar of the Old Testament. That's, that's the foundation on which they're having this conversation. So Jesus goes back to the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, water always symbolized the washing and cleansing away of our sins. Our sins, of course, being that which is in rebellion to God. And the Spirit, from, from the Genesis 1, when, when the Spirit of God breathed, breathed life into Adam and Eve, and all through the Old Testament, the Spirit is, is the work of God to breathe life, new life, into whatever it's breathed. And so he's saying, look, the new to be born from above is to be cleansed from your sins and to be given the life of God in you. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel, which I suspect that Nicodemus would have been thinking about, he writes this. He's talking about when the Messiah comes. He says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take away your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. See, Jesus is saying, look, when you're born from above, when you're born from above, God does this work in your heart that is incredible. He cleanses you from your sins. You no longer are going to worship the idols in the world around you. Instead, he's going to give you a heart that says, I want to do what God calls me to do. It's about an utter and complete transformation in your, in your life. You see, born, being born from above is not an add-on in your life. It's, it's not sort of a, a little adjustment that you make to how you live. It's not sprinkling a little religion on everything that you do. I don't know, being born from above means this complete, total, utter transformation of your life. If you're born from above, God literally implants His divine life within you. You're birthed into a new people, the people of God. You, you are um, you're dramatically transformed, born anew, made alive. It changes you. That's what, that's what Jesus is talking about here. I'm, uh, I'm reading a book right now. It's called Everything Sad is Untrue. It's by a, a guy named Daniel Neria. It's a, it's a great story. It's, uh, it's the story of his experiences as an Iranian refugee uh, in Oklahoma, as a, as a young boy. And he's an Iranian refugee in Oklahoma because his mother, who was a devout Muslim, a a deeply respected medical doctor who was married to a very prosperous dentist back in Iran. One day she, she met Jesus. One day she was born again. She was born anew. And it changed everything for her. And as a result, I mean, she had run in with the, with the religious police in Iran. They put a fatwa on her head, a, a death sentence on her. And she literally fled for her life and ended up as a as a refugee in Oklahoma 
who has a medical degree, but because her medical degree was not acknowledged, she was cleaning the hospital instead of working in the hospital as a doctor. And Daniel in his book, he, he says, when, when people ask me why, why would my mom do this? Here's what he tells them. He says this, how can you explain why you believe anything? So I just say what my mom says when people ask her. She looks them in the eye with the begging hope that they will hear her. And she says, because it's true. I mean, why else would she believe it? It's true and it's more valuable than $7 million in gold coins and thousands of acres of Persian countryside and 10 years of education to get a medical degree and all your family and a home and the best cream puffs of Jolfa and even maybe your life. My mom wouldn't have made the trade otherwise. See, that's what it means to be born from above. It's to utterly change and transform what God is doing in your life. In your heart, because you know that it's true. And because of that, you are willing, if necessary, to trade everything. Jesus says to, to, to Nicodemus, unless you're willing for that to happen in your life, you cannot be born again. You cannot be born anew. But then he says this. In verse 6, he says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now Jesus explains to Nicodemus that this whole being born from above thing, it's actually not something that you can do yourself anyway. It's something that God has to do in your heart. And he uses the example of being born physically. Right? Being for, born physically is not something that you initiate yourself. You have no control over it. It's something that happens to you. I mean, sometimes, sometimes my kids come to me and they, uh, and they say something ridiculous like, Dad, I got a great idea. We should move to Hawaii, buy a mansion on the ocean and, and lie on the beach all day and go surfing for the rest of our life. And when they say something ridiculous like that, I feel like that gives me permission to say something ridiculous back. So I always get my best dad joke going. And I say, well, son or daughter, we could do that except for you made one major mistake. You chose to be born into a family that doesn't have that kind of money. So it's your fault that you ain't doing that. And they always groan. I think it's a great joke, but it makes the point, right? You don't get to choose where you're born. Nobody gets to choose what family they're born into. It simply happens to them. And this is what Jesus says now when it comes to being born from above. Jesus says being born from above is something that God does in you. You don't control it. You can't make it happen. Just like babies in the womb can do nothing about, about this new birth. It's not something that we initiate. It's not a sort of cooperation between us and God. It's something that God does in your life. He causes you to be born from above. Jesus says this, it's like the wind. And here again, he uses another word that has two meanings in the Greek language. The word for wind is the exact same word for spirit. And so he says this, he says, look, you can't tell the wind where to blow. You can't tell the spirit where to move. It just blows where it does. The Spirit goes where the Spirit chooses to go. You can see the effects of it. 
You can see trees that sway in the wind. You can, you can see fields that, that wave, clouds that move through the sky. You can see lives that are changed and transformed by the, by the work of the Holy Spirit in them. But it's not something that you can do. It's something that God does in you. Which has two implications. First, it means that you should be filled with incredible joy and gratitude for what God has done. That he would choose you. That he would give his new life to you. But secondly, it raises the question, well, if, if this is something that God is, does, if, if it can't be sort of controlled, then, then does it make sense for us to share our faith? I mean, won't God just do what he's going to do anyway? Aren't we wasting our time then to, to share the gospel? And the answer, of course not. In fact, it's the exact opposite. If, if in fact, if in fact, it, God is going to do it. It means that God can and will work in places that you never dreamed possible. It means that God can and will bring new life to a deeply respected Muslim doctor in the middle of Iran that will change your life. It means that God, by the power of his spirit, can lead the most anti-God member of your family or your workplace or your school to him if he so chooses. It means that God could change the heart of some of the cultural elite who are so powerful and so smart and so articulate. He works in their life. It means that God can change your own heart. So should you share your faith? Of course. Of course. I mean, God didn't use a booming voice to talk to Nicodemus. He, he, he sent Jesus who spoke to Nicodemus in a way and a place and a time that Nicodemus could totally interact with. And Jesus does the same for us. He sends us to do the same in the world around us. But when we know that the Spirit is the one who, who brings new birth, new life into people's lives, that takes the pressure off of us, doesn't it? Then you have to worry if you said everything just right, if you, if you were persistent enough, if you, you know, did all these things. You just know, I just do my part. I just do whatever God calls me to do. And he's going to do the rest. Some ways we're like the prophet Ezekiel. You know, Jesus is sort of referencing what's happening in Ezekiel. It, it, there's a place in Ezekiel where, where the prophet has a vision. He's taken to this valley that is filled with all these dry bones, literally a valley filled with skeletons. He says to God, like, what, what's going on here? What, what am I doing here? And God says to Ezekiel, you prophesy. You speak to these dry bones. Okay, I'll be obedient. I'll just speak. And as he speaks, it's the, the Spirit of God again, the Spirit, the wind of God that blows upon that valley. And, and slowly but surely, those bones come together with sinews and flesh and skin. And before his very eyes in this vision, this whole army of people that follow God come to life. All he did was speak. But it was the Spirit of God that gave them that kind of life. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He calls us to, to share the gospel. We, we've been talking this fall about gossiping the gospel. And some people say, why? You don't gossip. I know, I know. Don't. Okay. The idea is this. It's not a big formal presentation. I mean, you can if you get the chance. But it's mostly just about letting your love for Jesus just kind of slip out in, in conversation here and there like you shouldn't with actual gossip. But you'll get the idea. We should gossip the gospel. 
Just do our part and allow God's Spirit to work in people's hearts and lives and lead them to a new life that they're born from above. Nicodemus, he listens to Jesus now. He, Jesus has his attention and, he, and he's processing it. But, you know, it's so different from what he thought, so, so different from what he's been sort of trained all his life. And so here's what he says in verse 9. He says, Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can these things be? I, I just, I'm just trying to wrap my head around this thing. It's so different from, from what I thought. And, and Jesus responds this way. Jesus answers him. He says, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? Jesus says, look, you're the smartest guy in the entire country. What part don't you get? And then he goes on to say this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Do you know? I mean, you should know this. The smartest person in the room doesn't always mean they're the smartest person about everything, right? I mean, you can have someone who is incredibly smart in their particular field of study or knowledge, but that doesn't mean they're smart about every part of life. I mean, when it comes to living life, your grandma or your grandpa or your uncle or your mom or your dad, I mean, whoever it is, might not have a university degree. They might not even have graduated from high school. But when it comes to how to live this life, often they're way smarter than the guy who's so brilliant in one particular field. And this is what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. He said, you, you might have the letters behind your name, but that doesn't mean that you're smart in all of these things, in everything. He says, we know what we've seen. We've seen lives changed and transformed by the power of the gospel. So pay attention. Listen to what we're talking about. And then in verse 12, he goes on to say this. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe when I tell you heavenly things? In other words, if I explain to you something as simple as being born from above, if you have troubles with that, how are you going to understand when we get to the deeper end of the pool, to, to things like the, the working of the Holy Spirit and the doctrine of the Trinity and the sovereignty of God? And then he goes on again. He, he keeps going. He says in verse uh, 13, he says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now here, here Jesus is talking about a common idea that floated around in that day, which was that some of the prophets of old from the Old Testament literally ascended into heaven and spent time talking to God and then came back down and explained everything. Jesus said, that's not true. There's no evidence of that happening. No, no. He says the only one who, who knows all about heaven and it comes to tell you is the Son of Man himself who God sent to come and to speak the truth. So he says, Nicodemus, don't get, don't get caught up with all that stuff that's floating out, around out there about this and that. And that. Listen to what I have to say. Here, here's the point. Here's what Jesus is trying to say in all this. He says, being born from above is not that complicated. It's not rocket science. He says to Nicodemus, don't overcomplicate it. It's different from how you thought it would be. But it's a simple thing. I mean, God wants to forgive you of your sins. He, he wants to come into your life and fill that empty place that only He can fill. And He wants to change your heart. And He's going to do it. He'll do it all. You, you just have to receive it. And if you receive it, it will bring a peace and a satisfaction in this life that you just can't, I mean, you just can't get with all of these other things that aren't designed to fulfill that need in your life. 
comes from being born anew, born from above. Finally, Jesus says this in verse 14. And as Moses is lifted up, sorry, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now here, again, when he's talking to Nicodemus, he's referring to a story that Nicodemus would be completely aware of. It's a story from the Old Testament where Moses, Moses and the people are in the wilderness and the people are being bitten by these poisonous snakes. And so Moses lifts up this, God tells him to make a, a, a brass snake and put it on a pole and he lifts it up and when people who have been bitten and are dying look at that snake, God in his mercy, in his grace, he heals them and gives them new life. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, that's what God is going to do through me. Only it won't be on a pole for people who are bitten by a snake. It'll be on a cross where I will suffer and I will die for the sins of the world so that those who are under the curse of sin, those who are doomed to a death, an eternal death apart from God, can find new life. Here's what, here's what Jesus says. Last point that he makes is this. Being born from above is possible because of Jesus' death and his resurrection. So, how about you? How about you? Have you been born from above? I mean, you know, it may be totally different than you thought. It may be like, well, I didn't think that there was this sort of spiritual element in my life. But there is. It's a human thing. God made that kind of need in us. And you might have thought, well, I thought that, you know, it was really about keeping rules and about doing religious ceremony thing. Or, or, or I thought that maybe I could be fill that need in my life simply by being good enough or, or by filling with all these other things. Turns out that's not, that's not how it happens. It's not, it's not how it works. And, uh, and the smartest guy in all of Israel, he had troubles wrapping his head around this thing, but it's not that complicated. I mean, don't, don't let this become a super complicated thing for you. It's really, it's really simple. It's an invitation, not, not from me, but from the Spirit of God who is at work in your life, an invitation to be born from above, to have him come in and cleanse your, your, your heart from the sin and the brokenness in this world and, and from you know, worshiping things that, that don't fill that thing and rather to be given new life with God himself coming and dwelling in yourself. And how does that happen? That simply happens by acknowledging what Jesus did on the cross. And by accepting his death in your place and his resurrection life into your life. And by acknowledging that, that, that not only did he die, but he was rose again. And that you're going to submit your life to him. All of your life. Not a little sprinkle here and there, but every aspect. And so I want to invite you today, if you have not been born anew. If you have not been born above, from above. If you have not been born again. I mean, today is the day. Today is the day. And in fact, I want to invite you. I want to invite you right now. Would you bow your heads? Would you pray with me? I'm just going to say a prayer. And as I pray it, you just repeat it after me. Just quietly in your heart. God can hear you in your heart. And you tell him this. Okay? Here, let's pray. God. God, I want you in my life. God, I want you to change my heart and, and fill the spiritual part of my life that seems so empty. And God, I acknowledge that I am a sinner and that you paid the price for my sins when you suffered and died on the cross. And I repent of my sins and I put my trust in you. And I invite 
You send your spirit to come and to dwell in me and to give me new life right now that I might be born again, that I might be born from above. And so I thank you, God. I trust you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, if you prayed that prayer, then you are born again. You're born from above and God has come and he now dwells in your life. And that, that is the greatest miracle of all. It, that, that, that's the miracle that leads to genuine, true faith in your life. Thank you for coming and joining us again today. I hope that today, I hope that today, especially if you don't know God, that you're just so challenged. You say, I just need to explore more. I need to investigate more. I need to, I need to at least think about it. And if it's true, invite and allow the Spirit of God to come and to work in my life, to birth in me this new life to be born again. I mean, if that's you, I just want to invite you to do that. I want to I end today by reading to you a couple of verses that the Apostle Paul writes. Romans chapter 8 says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him gloriously, graciously give us all things? In God, we have all the things that we need to live this life in the fullness that he always intended it to be. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.